So before we actually get to New Frontier, I kind of want to talk about uh, what led us here today. So last season, um, we spoke... Of, Mike is really engrossed in New Frontier. We were <laughs> trying to do the episode I here. I love he's this still, comic. He's still re- he can't stop reading it's it. such a good story. We have it in front of us. We have the Absolute Edition tabbed with, uh, with, with Mike's notes here. The other way that alternate realities continues to live on, because... You know, Mike, once again, is, is uh, pouring through these New Frontier pages. It's so good. Um, uh, and so in addition to being a book club, uh, I guess Alternate Realities is also still a dinner group. Um, Mike, Mike, are you with me? You're like all over the place here. <laughs> What's I, going I, on? I'm, 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 you know, I'm waiting. You're like on your I, phone. I wanna, you're reading the book. This is, this is what we were talking about of being at work. Like, I, I'm a multitasker. I'm like listening to it's you. Like, but I'm like, trying to set you up for something. You're not so with me. I am with you. Believe me. You're going to switch back. You're going to say, how do you feel about that? I'm going to have an entire thing ready to go. Jesus, thank God he's not a surgeon. Jesus. Yeah, no, no, no. <laughs> you know, for me, it was something that I read as it was coming out, and, and I enjoyed it from the start. And Rich, I think you had a similar experience. Uh, we I, something's happened here to the absolute. I, I don't know what. Uh, what oh, I'm I'm wiping off a little bit of my lunch because I was really excited to speak with this about Rich Roney, and apparently I got a bunch of crap on it. Uh, anyone who knows me knows I don't take particularly good care of my comics, but I noticed this here, and it's going to bother me if I don't get rid of it. For so. those who don't know, sorry, my, Anthony. For that, this is par for the course today. And then he finds out about Kryptonite, and I don't want to give too much away, but his reaction to what, Mike? What are you doing? Nothing. Sorry. <laughs> Like, what the hell? I'm not used to sitting still for this long. You tell me I couldn't flip through my books. I got distracted by my shirt. I'm sorry. You did want a little levity and humor and laughter. Not at my expense so much, but I guess I'll take it. He beats us when you guys are not listening, by the way. We cut those out. Welcome to My Comic Shop History. I am your host, Anthony Desiato, and this is the first edition of the Alternate Realities Book Club. I'm really excited to do this slightly different version of the podcast. We've been talking a lot about collecting over the past few episodes, and we're going to touch on that a little bit in this episode, but for the most part, this is going to be a little bit of a break in the action as we do some really serious but also fun comic book talk. So I want to introduce the rest of my book club. To my right, we have the legendary Rich Roney. Rich, say hello. Yeah. Hello, everybody. You got to speak for this to work. <laughs> Auditory <laughs> media. Yeah, they're so audi- audience drive me nuts. And then we have a couple other gentlemen on the other side of the table. Mr. Phil Hussein, welcome oh. back to the show. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And then uh, next to you, Phil, we have Mr. Mike San Gregorio. Hello, everyone. We are recording today at All Yeah Comics in Harrison, New York. Uh, Mark and the rest of the All Yeah crew very graciously allowed us to take over the uh, back studio room here uh, and set up, and uh, we're really grateful to be able to do this here. Phil, would you like to do the honors? Tell us uh, what we're going to be discussing today. Sure. We're going to be discussing DC The New Frontier by Darwin Cook. Uh, it came out in early 2000s, a retro uh, telling of you know the DC characters, which in my opinion was a fantastic read, second time around. I guess on that note, you know, let's get into the story here. For anyone who hasn't read New Frontier who's listening to this, uh, I think you could still follow along. Uh, I would imagine a lot of people, it's, it's a classic story, very popular. I imagine a lot of people have already read it. Uh, if you haven't, while well, you don't need to have read it for the purposes of listening to this episode, I highly encourage it, and I would imagine that the rest of you would uh, as well. It's a terrific story. Uh, whether you read the book or you watch the movie or you do both, um, I really think you'll get a lot out of it and enjoy it. By way of recap, um, what the story is about. Uh, so the story chronicles the formation of the Justice League and the dawn of the Silver Age of comics. It is set in the 1950s, which is different than most modern comics. So it, it places these characters in their proper historical context. So the story takes place during the period of time when these characters' early adventures were being published. So it's set in uh, post-war America, Uh, We've now entered the Cold War. There's a lot of paranoia. The government is trying to root out subversive influences. The previous generation of 
costumed heroes, the mystery men, they have all been forced into retirement or they've been captured. And really the only golden age heroes who remain are Batman, Superman, and Wonder Woman. Batman's operating as an outlaw. Superman and Wonder Woman are basically doing these clandestine operations for the government. They're not the leaders and the um, sources of inspiration that they will become and that they need to become. And while that's going on, a new threat is rising, which we come to learn is the center. And it's infecting uh, people throughout the world with, with doubt and fear and despair. And a new generation, a new wave of heroes, Flash, Green Lantern, Martian Manhunter, many others, uh, must rise and uh, become the heroes that we need and, and dispatch this threat. And so that, you know, it's, it's a sprawling epic. It really, it's very expansive. It, it touches on virtually every corner of the DC universe. It took every character that was published basic, basically in 1959 or 1960 and wove it into one single 380-page story. Yeah, the best part about New Frontier, or rather, one of my favorite aspects of it is that it's essentially a, a crossover that could have happened at the time. There's nothing in here that contradicts what comics were actually being published at the end of the 50s. Um, you know, it's almost as if you took everything that was coming out during like the fifth week of publishing, if we think about it in modern terms, and said, oh, they're all going to fight the center who's going to be gone by the end of the story. So that's why the Justice League didn't have to fight him when they started the month after. So to Rich's point, I mean, from a from a continuity point of view, there's nothing in here that doesn't fit in with what we've known. But at the same time, the recontextualization and the appreciation for this material. I mean, th this is my introduction to more than half the DC universe, and it's a heck of a ride. I mean, personally, for me, I look at it that, you know, they're telling stories from the 50s, you know, the good old days. But in my opinion, when they would publish these stories back in those days, they would keep it very wholesome, you know, good. For, but what this is doing is tackling the reality. It tackles like the McCarthy trials. It's tackling civil rights. And, you know, it's showing you the darker things that they would never publish in the 50s. So it's going back and saying, hey, you know, you thought these were the good old days. Guess what? There's a darker aspect in the social economic conditions that they did not address, which is why, to me, this is why it clicked more for me now. Clearly, you know, all of this was by design by the project's creator, the writer and artist, Darwin Cook, uh, who, you know, very sadly passed away recently. Uh, I told a little story about him um, a few episodes ago, um, but, I mean, this work that he has done is just absolutely incredible. I, I just want to quote something really quick. Um, from The Absolute, there's an afterword by Darwin, and uh, in it, he he kind of comments on on the idea of these being set in in the better days and again i'm i'm 31 i have no nostalgia for the 50s but he says um He's talking about an interaction with a fan, and he says, if you're bracing for speech number whatever about how those were the better days, uh, relax. It wasn't the times or the place or the cultural comforts of the era. It was something you can find anywhere at any time. And then he says, it was the earnest faith of youth. And that's from Darwin in 2005, and I think that kind of summarizes what we're trying to say. He, he, he wasn't just like fetishizing this period that he may have remembered or, or may have read about. This was like, why? Why did we care? He took it a step further and he, he really made an incredible work of art because of it. Uh, I read it as it was coming out. I enjoyed it a lot. Uh, Rich, I think you probably had somewhat of a similar experience. I was interested to learn, though, that, you know, Mike and Phil, you guys were not immediately taken with it. I'll toss it to you first, Phil. What were your initial impressions of New Frontier? And how did you read it initially? How did you come across it? I read originally as the first trade came out, so didn't read, <coughs> excuse me, the second one. Uh, it just didn't feel like it didn't click with me. It felt like, you know... Maybe it was being a child, being a young kid, not understanding the meaning of patience, letting things build, let simmer. So I just read it, and I was like, oh, it's just a little bit of off one takes of, you know, different origin stories. I'm not sure what's happening. Hey, even, you know, Green Lantern, Hal Jordan hasn't even turned into Green Lantern. What's going on? So maybe it was just, the, you know, not appreciating it, not having a mature sense. But going back to it now, I reread that, reread the same thing. And I realized, wow, this is, this is a buildup. This is what happens. You want to tell a good story, you need to have the foundation. But, you know, seven years later when I read it again, it just clicked. It just made sense from that perspective. So, yes, I've appreciated it now rather than when it did in the past. And I welcome your thoughts, but when I, f as this was coming out, I was very excited because Hal Jordan is one of my, my five favorite characters. And I heard this being built up as, hey, this is going to be the origin story of Hal Jordan by Darwin Cook. Uh, so I was really looking forward to it, but... I. And Anthony, I welcome your thoughts. The very first part of this, the very first one on uh, Dinosaur Island, 
when I read that, I'm, I, I, did, I did have some doubts. I wondered, like, where is this going? You know, because it was so slow. And the captures, ca- characters really didn't capture me. But then, fortunately, this thing builds. It's a more of a, a, a larger, sprawling, cohesive story. But I remember at the end of the first one, I was, I was scratching my head a little bit, the very first book. Yeah, you know, it's definitely a bold choice to, you know, I feel like maybe this could be a tough sell to begin with. You know, a, a DC superhero story set in the 50s and to kick it off with this lengthy sequence featuring the losers a 64 page uh. yeah featuring the losers on dinosaur island um it it was a little risky uh cook acknowledges that though in the annotations to this you know he was well aware that it was you know somewhat of a bold choice to start that way but yeah i think once you get to the end of it and you see how it all ties together and you know the nature of heroism and how our heroes have, have changed and all of that you know, it does make sense. You know, one other question that I had for you, Phil, as I was rereading this, and I, don't, I lost track of how many times I've read it now at this point. I want to say this was at least five. I feel like I've read it at least a handful of times. Um, but as I was reading it this time, Phil, and, and prepping for this episode and thinking about what we were going to be talking about and who I was going to be talking to, um, I thought of you because, you know, you were not born in America. Mm-mm. And this story is very, you know, quote unquote, American. Certainly, as you guys were getting at before, you know, it doesn't shy away from the areas where this country has struggled. Right. Um, you know, the whole John Henry Iron sequence in particular, or John Wilson. But it's still very much about what America can be and yeah. the ideals that, you know, we aspire to. So as someone who wasn't born here, I mean, what was your take on that, reading it? I mean, I'll be honest with me, the, on the side stories, the giant orange one was the one that clicked more with me in terms of just the civil rights of man being persecuted because of the color of his skin, his family killed, I mean, you know, and him getting betrayed at the end by that child. That, I mean, you know, to me, it was just... You hear about it from another country, coming from coming from Pakistan, where I'm from. You know the land of opportunities, things of that nature, and how there's this painted picture that you are envisioned as a child growing up in another country, and you come here, and then you see the dark side of things. You know, so it's not like you know, but it's also the the spirit of the American people. It's learning, staying positive, and pushing on. Life gives you lemons, you make lemonades. So that the kind of feeling made me happy when I read it like you know it was always you have a conflict you're not gonna hide away from it you're gonna have issues Hal Jordan had PTSD I mean you can tell he was scared after the the when he was telling the guy he forgot how to say in Korean the war is over the war is over and when he's in the helicopter he starts speaking and that's the only thing he can say you know it's just all those things where it's like you see the humanity in people and in America you see the various issues that most other countries don't have because they don't have the diversity and that's why I think that that's what makes this book so great is that it gives you the American spirit, but it's not just the good stuff. It's not sugarcoating it. It's showing the conflicts, but at the end of the day, we always come through at the end together as people. So that's what I loved about it. Rich, you have an, an interesting perspective as well. So we mentioned how you, you, know, you just turned 60. So uh, you know, when did you start reading comics? What, like, what time period are we talking here? Oh, I, I guess probably, quite frankly, just about this time, probably about 1962 was when I started reading. And, uh, what for me was tremendous, and I'm, I know you want to talk about the story, but let me talk about when I met Darwin Cook and what, what, what that was like. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, just <laughs> by way of setup. So we, we've gotten at this a couple times before in the podcast, uh, especially last season. Uh, you've had a number of encounters with, uh, with certain comic book creators. You've, you've visited Mark Wade numerous occasions at different comic book conventions, always wearing the same, same attire. So yes. he, well, he can't forget you. That's correct. Um, and he might even listen since he's one of the owners of All Yeah. He might. I, that would be great if he listened. Hi, Mark. You also had a run-in with DC artist Shane Davis where you, uh, you, you kind of accosted him at the laundromat or the bagel store. Which the, one bagel store. the bagel store. The bagel store. No, yeah. you didn't accost him. When but, does uh, that restraining order expire? Are we, are we there yet? Does this violate anything in particular? But you saw him, you recognized him, you shook his hand, and he was, he was a little taken aback, but then you explained that you had someone in common, Brandon Montclair, DC editor, comic he, book creator. And Shane calmed down then. I, I might have come at him a little fast. So, uh, concluding the trilogy of Rich Roney meets comic book creators, what was your uh, encounter with Darwin Cook like? I gotta tell you, it was absolutely tremendously pleasant and enjoyable on all levels. At the same time that Parker, the first book of Parker started coming out, I had gone to Heroes Con with, uh, with Drew and Tom, and it was the Friday of Heroes Con. It was tremendously empty and open, so it was the Friday before, and around noon... Uh, I saw Darwin Cook sitting completely by himself at, at one of the tables. 
and I brought, I bought one of the one of the books, and I carried one with me. But I had two of them uh, signed by him. But we had a tremendously, I'd say, for about twenty minutes, we just spoke, just in, no no foreordained script or agenda. But one of the things I told him was, I said I enjoyed his work, and I said I especially enjoyed this because I think I'm about seven years older than Darwin Cook. But I grew up during the very time he was setting this story, the chronology in the the early 1960s. And I said to him, I said, I got to tell you, I grew up in this time. This reminds me so much of Project Mercury. I can remember when I was like six years old, uh, my mother and I were in our living room. We were watching John Glenn orbit the Earth uh, the three times. It was huge. Um, And he got very excited. He shot back. He said, you know how I pitched this? He said, I pitched this as the right stuff. Uh, meets the JLA. Uh, so we spoke a lot about society at that time and the story he was trying to sell, and also how, how it was so consistent with the Kennedy era. Uh, Camelot, JFK, uh, even as uh, Kennedy's speech, you know, the torch has been passed to a new generation. Um, and he, I said I loved it because he really captured all the excitement and all the optimism of that time. When Kennedy was in office, it was tremendous, tremendously optimistic. There was the Peace Corps. There were so many initiatives. Uh, the, space, the space race, Project Mercury, Project Apollo. So I said it captured that excitement, that optimism. and just It was a tremendously enjoyable conversation. So much so that uh, uh, three days later when Tom and I were going through the lobby of the hotel, uh, we were getting, trying to get an, on an elevator to go up to see Drew, and Darwin was coming out of the elevator, crossed the hall, but he remembered me. He was very, very excited. He said, hey, guys, how's it going? Um, and I just, it was a wonderfully pleasant conversation. I'm glad that you were able to have that, you know, that meeting with him and that you were able to speak to him for as long as you did because oftentimes at these conventions, you know, you see someone, it's, it's just for a couple of minutes. You tell them you like their work. Maybe you get something signed. But the fact that you were able, really able to have a discussion with him is really tremendous. And I guess going back, though, to my earlier question about, um, you know, your, your perspective and all of this, as someone who read the exploits of these characters as they were originally being published around the time that, you know, this story is set, I mean, I don't know, I guess, so what was your impression as you were reading New Frontier and seeing your characters in that, in that light? You had the big three, as Anthony said. You had Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. But from a craftsmanship standpoint... He kind of sidelined them. He, he found ways to make sure they were not, you know, they were removed at the very end when they fought the villain. And it gave Flash and Green Lantern and John Jones each a sta- chance to step up. But throughout the, the base of the story, what I liked the most was it showed each of those three characters, uh, Hal, Barry, and John, as they ceased being a civilian and took the very, very first steps the very, very first steps to becoming a superhero. Each of them made that transition from civilian to hero. And I found that that, that transition phase and that very beginning fascinating. No. Like even um, Barry's, Barry's insecurity about meeting uh, Superman, I thought was interesting. Even a Superman. Yeah, as, as Rich was saying that, we hear the Superman theme music playing. <laughs> Once again, we are recording at, a, at an active comic shop, so if you hear anything in the background, that's, you know, that's what it is. Uh, I mean, you bring up really interesting points, and for me in particular, I mean, you guys all know, and at this point, most listeners know, you know, Superman's my favorite character. So, for me, it's a little, it's a little tough to accept Superman's role in this because, again, his his job is to inspire, but then to get out of the picture. It always makes me laugh, though. He has that great moment where he, you know, he gives the speech to Are everybody. Are you with me? <laughs> Are you with me? You know, everybody's still bickering, the government agents and the mystery men and all that. And he, he gets everybody united and they're looking on and he, he flies off and he's like, he gets blasted by the center. <laughs> We're dead. And that's it. And it's, he's gone so quickly, but, it, you know, he has to be gone that quickly. Yeah, they because, had to sign, sideline him. Right. And, you know, it was not his moment it was the time for these other characters but he did also still serve that very critical role of bringing them together and you know throughout the story you know when we do see superman he is struggling with with his role you know he's doing missions for the government but he's not again the superman that we know he'll become and so he does have his own important arc and but it's in service of of these other characters so it's a little tricky for me as a superman fan but i I appreciate it and it works The, the to that end and, and to me, there's two groups of threes. You got Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. And then you got Hal, John, and uh, Barry, right? 
two two different generations to a degree. But what was fascinating, I thought, was the craftsmanship. You know, he did he did the you know the black insignia, the whole Fleischer Superman. He did the Golden Age Batman, even with the uh, the purple gloves. Uh, but also, what was cool was the the unique rendition of Wonder Woman. You know, taller than Superman, an Amazon. She was Conan. You know, she's reveling in the you know the victory, in um, you know with the women over the oppressors. She, that was like Conan celebrating after her, uh, after her a sword. Like this is a this is a version of Wonder Woman that has a sword and a shield, and you know she is a warrior. And and there's two things that I always notice. Um, She's always smiling. Diana is always shown smiling, regardless of what's going on, um, and it's just—it's beautiful. Uh, everyone else is scowling, and it's because they're struggling with it. Diana is, in many ways, the inspirational figure in this, and it's just a beautiful recontextualization of that of that character. The second thing is her sword is dented, and I really, really connected with that because this is a. You know, that's like seeing Captain America's shield dented. And it's like, this is a, a magic weapon. This is uh, something that she's carried into battle time and time again. And it just hints at other stories and other mythologies and really just begs the question, like, what has Diana survived? You know, what overwhelming threats has she gone through? And to see her stand next to all the various superheroes with this gear, it's just like, oh, yeah, I understand why being around someone like that would make you want to kind of risk everything and, and, and fight the big threats. And I, I just thought she was so wonderfully well done here and I, I i think this is probably my favorite interpretation of wonder woman and darwin cook's probably my favorite wonder woman writer even though i think he's only written her about a dozen times so i think that's what stood out for me was the wonder woman is probably the best written wonder woman i have read i mean the best thing in my opinion was um that when superman goes to the, um, the paradise island where they're living and she just has these amazing like maternal instinct uh, advice that she gives my favorite was when she says to him Cal, your p real power lies not in your strength, but in your values and compassionate spirit. And it's just like, you know, she's just able to hit it home that it's not his powers that make him the person. He is the, the sign of hope because of what his values are. And that's the most important thing. And m one last thing, if I could say about the Wonder Woman was, um, I hate going through this. Basically, it's in the special little uh, one-off issue that they did, the classified, where it says, for an Amazon, there's no greater deed than overcoming anger and conflict with love. Yes, she's an Amazonian. She battles, but you don't see that. You see her resolving anger and conflict with love. So that's the thing. Whereas, unfortunately, most modern Wonder Woman are written as she, they're angry, man-hating. You know, you don't see that. And you can also see it in the uh, tribute at the end of the second volume. Look at how Darwin Cook approaches women. He says, you know, at the end, I, all others like to thank my mom. Her love, determination, and strength set a powerful example for me and gave me the spirit to climb this mountain. So the authors themselves are contributing, writing positive women because they have this positive influence in their life. Going back to what Phil said, if you're reading the, the classified issue, the one that's not in the, the absolute, she is responsible for putting together the world's finest team. And I love that because if you're reading comments during the 50s, there's really no justice society, there's really no justice league, there's no Marvel comics yet. But you have these three characters who were the representation of superheroes when the entire genre was, you know, not very popular. And to see Darwin look at the three of them and say, well, what was their relationship like when they were the only ones? And have Diana say, no, of course you guys, you know, are going to fight and you're going to come at odds. You're, you're such great personalities. But she brings them together. And then, as Phil said, there's this great line about ending the conflict with love. But it's not, it's not like a weird pacifist way. It's not saying that fighting is a bad thing. It's just saying that fighting in this context doesn't make any sense. So to think that she united the world's finest and everything they're going to do, it just made me love these characters. I mean, if you change the names of these characters, I would read them every single month. Like, I love this so much. I think that's the one thing I've seen with Darwin's wonderful storytelling is that, you know, some people rush to give you an end result. Darwin has this amazing ability to tell, resolve conflict in a page in two panels. That's the most amazing thing. He can just hit a point home right there within two panels and you're like, oh, this just clicks instantaneously. Just sort of while we're on the, you know, the depiction of the, of the big three, Superman, Batman, Wonder Woman. So you mentioned the JLA classified issue. So DC New Frontier was a six-issue uh, miniseries. Each issue was was 
lengthy. Six, 64 pages. Um, yeah. But then when uh, Warner Brothers put out the animated adaptation of New Frontier, they put out a comic book special as well to coincide with, with the release. Uh, and it consists of three stories. Two of them are, are real real quick. They're, they're very fun. You're absolutely right, except there's a fourth story. It is the very first page. Uh, it features the character Rip Hunter, uh, who's kind of this proto-Doctor Who that DC invented during the 50s. Uh, and here he acts as the narrator. And I don't quite remember the context when this issue came out, but there are lines in here that I just really want to share because I think they continue to, to, to be timeless. Um, the, the character is explaining which continuity does the story you're about to read exist in. And this is a, a conversation I've had with many different uh, of fans and friends over the years. And he says, is it in the version that you're, you've read in the comics? Is it in the version that you're going to see on film? And Rip, who is a time traveler and kind of makes sense that he would say this, says, who cares? <laughs> who cares what reality it's in? Um, there are an infinite number of realities. We call that fiction. Uh, and then he makes a joke. The camera pans out, so to speak, and you see him enjoying himself. And to me, this is one of the best single pages I've ever read because Darwin Cook is taking all of our arguments about what does and doesn't matter and saying, you know, really, none of it matters. It's a matter of what you get out of it and what you enjoy. And I just feel like that informs so much of, of the love he brings to this stuff. Like he didn't worry about the details. He worried about what he got out of it and he was able to convey that back to you. So I just, I really just wanted to make sure that if you haven't read this page, please, I'm sure you can find it on Google. It's just great. So you guys were talking about the, um, you know, the main story in that JLA one shot uh, with Batman, Superman and Wonder Woman. Um, and we talked about how, you know, in the, main new frontier story there's this whole bit about how superman and batman fake superman's defeat when they battle and this one shot story gives you the the background on that and it's a great story zeroing back in on new frontier i mean what are some of the other things that really made an impression on you i mean i'll say one thing for me uh is cook's depiction of the barry allen flash which is one of my favorite parts of the entire story at the time you know barry allen had not return to life in the main DC continuity. That only happened just a couple of years ago. Wally West was my Flash. He's still my Flash. But mm -hmm. at that point, I mean, I hadn't read any Barry stories. I mean, I only knew Wally as the Flash. And this made me a Barry fan. I mean, don't ever mess with my Iris. It's, you know, one of my favorite Barry moments, one of my favorite New Frontier moments. It's just perfect. And that whole sequence with Captain Cold, you know, stopping the bombs from going off and creating the snowfall, all of it. I mean, I just loved it. Well, and having grown up with it, the... Carmine Infantino and Gardner Fox and John Broom Flash was very much a scientist. I mean, almost a dispassionate scientist. Uh, he was a thinking man's uh, hero. But in this, the love he had for Iris and his protection and his, his fear, if she was going to be hurt, like you said, don't ever mess with my Iris. That was fantastic. That, that really showed the humanity. And even later on in the book, I liked it when Barry showed all his anxiety and his sense of inferiority against Superman. It's also genuine. It's yeah. not starting with the superhero. It's starting with the man. I mean, one of the reasons I'm enjoying the Flash TV show so much is it, it's kind of reminiscent of Spider-Man. And I saw a lot of Peter Parker in this version of Barry Allen. I'm, I'm like, Desi, I, I, this was Wally West was my Flash. I had to learn to like Barry Allen and watching him uh, look at this from a human perspective and say, I love her. She's the only reason I keep a secret identity. She's the reason later on in the book he temporarily resigns from active duty. It's it's driven by real human needs and not just out there superhero stuff. And it's so well done. It's just a substance. There's a substance to the power because without that, it's, there's nothing. I mean, you can't tell a story. That's, that's what makes Superman stories that I read, like All-Star or anything of that nature. Yeah. You're telling the humanity behind these superheroes. Even though Superman's quote-unquote not human, his emotions are that of a human being, and that's what drives the person. The powers are completely secondary. Yeah, it's like John Jones and King Faraday playing chess. Yes. It's like you could leave at any time. He's like, why would I want to? I'm going to get through to you. And then when they finally do at the end, there's the most, you know, quote-unquote commie basher guy in the world and a guy from Mars, and they're teaming up to, to fight the island of the dinosaurs. It's like only in superhero comics. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of reasons why this story has is a favorite of ours and has been a favorite of, of so many comic book fans and you know we've hit on a lot of them already but i think yeah the humanity that cook showed of all of these characters i think more than anything else you know that's what has elevated this story so basically like when king faraday talks to john he says you know you can leave any time there's this great visual sequence where faraday lights a cigarette 
And when he tries to put it in his mouth, he sees this realization where this guy is saying, I'm not a murderer. It would have diminished me to let another creature die unnecessarily. And he's telling this to kings, you are not an evil. You are not evil within your mind. I can see that your struggle is good. And the cigarette from king's mouth falls off and falls to the ground. That He had a realization that, you know, this quote-unquote hideous alien creature actually has a heart and has a humanity to it in terms of its emotion that they're not cold murderous creatures in the universe yeah he is not he's not in his traditional martian manhunter guys i mean it's very important to point out darwin cook drew him not only as an otherworldly being but really unlike any depiction i've seen before this is this is a a, a creature i mean dr- grotesque yeah yeah it's it's it goes out of its way I mean, he's got like he's got like three or four strange digits and you know jean could change at any time but he doesn't he sits here and he goes you you know you need to understand that the world is filled with people who don't necessarily are like you but that doesn't change the fact that they're yeah. good people I mean, if you look at it, like you have this grotesque creature telling a human being that, you know, in your heart, you're honestly, you honestly believe there will be a better day when all of this won't be needed. To find that within you, King Faraday, it has filled my heart with hope. Like, it's just a human interaction at the end of the day. Yes, they might be different creatures, different worlds, but that, I mean, you know, this is just beautiful storytelling. Yeah, and John is another beautiful example of the the outsider and the immigrant i mean people always say superman is an immigrant but he arrived as a child i mean he was raised here diana came in as an adult and jean came even later in his life i mean later on we'll find out he had kids and wives and everything else back on mars um but you know when jean arrives here he is trying to make the best of a bad situation and for him to kind of say well listen i'm going to help you with your stuff too it just shows how strong of a character he is but also unique i don't think any other member of the justice league could have played that scene as believably well and to see the reaction on faraday's face where he's this hard ass to all the other characters and jean is able to just get through to him with love it's just it's great to read I put this in the email I sent you guys, but it's like, how has there not been a Martian Manhunter series or miniseries where he's, you know, a detective modeled after, you know, these movie stars that that he sees and, you know, just like really corny and spouting these catchphrases. Oh, Mickey Spillane. Yeah. I mean, the way he's depicted here, uh, I mean, I just, I, I loved it. And again, another example of making me a fan out of a character who I didn't really have much, if any, affinity for prior. You had asked what we, we like about the story. I think what takes a little bit more time to appreciate is how there's an appearance and every single character published in 1959 or 1960 is in the story in some way and they all add to it i mean you got the blackhawks you've got the challengers of the unknown the sea devils the sea devils you got professor haley you got uh, uh nathaniel adam as a pilot before it was captain adam you've got the losers task task force viking prince right in in, in the flashback i mean how holistic can you be yeah so he included all of them he used ace morgan as a contrast to how ace was the macho 50s crew cut live hard drink hard play hard um and then Hal's more the modern man. He was in touch with his feelings. He's compassionate. The the post-traumatic stress syndrome that Phil brought up. So it, it's, it's a juxtaposition of two different eras and two different uh, generations. Um, you know, another thing that you mentioned, Rich, was, um, and we hit on this before too, but just how expansive it is and how Cook works in everybody. And I am curious. Again, I know overall we enjoyed it, but... You know, Phil, you mentioned before how initially it, it was a little off-putting how much it, it jumped around, um, and, and it does. I mean, it's not like we're following one character through this. I don't know. I wonder if sometimes maybe I would have preferred if certain characters had, you know, hadn't made the cut. I know in my email I said, like, I could have done without the challenges of the unknown. And I, as I was writing it, I said, like, I know Mike is going to jump on this. And you felt the opposite. For me, I guess it's more of the, um, the DC characters that I was already familiar with, like, you know, Flash and Green Lantern and Martian Manhunter that I maybe would have wanted more of and well, maybe a little less of some of the yeah. of the other characters. I think it's a question of time. Things happen during that era which need to be touched on. And the reason that I really like the challenges of the unknown being included here is not just because they're, they're these proto-Jack Kirby characters, but because they are a contrast to the Justice Society that came before and the Justice League that came later. They have no secret identities. They've survived terrible, terrible tragedy. And they are the go-to super people in an era where the response team is government-backed. Because everyone else, everyone who wears a mask, everyone who's an outsider, is considered a potential threat. But they don't work. And to your point, they're not around today. There's no version of the Challengers of the Unknown I'd rec- I recommend to someone. They're quickly replaced by the Justice League, which are 
big costumed colorful outsiders and i feel like they're the the incredible wow. nature of them and their stories is made better when you compare them to what the government said we should allow during the 50s the challengers the suicide squad these other people who were very down to earth but at the end they, they couldn't accomplish as much as the people who came before and after but i think the issue is i guess when you're a young reader you start out this mega epic you know miniseries and you have these unknown characters you know i'm a young kid you know when, when we read this you you're have still super- a young kid uh, no, i know I can't help it. Uh, when you have Superman, Batman, you know, these are the prominent DC characters. And you start your series out with these characters called the Losers. I have no idea who they are. So, as I, you know, when I'm reading this dinosaur story. But you do now, right? I do now. But <laughs> it's also appreciating the story itself. You know, like these guys are sacrificing themselves because, quote unquote, their team name says it all. So you appreciate it more. But, you know, if you're of a younger age demographic, it might be just tougher to get into. And that's what possibly happened when I read it the first time. Yeah, same here. Same for me. I, I could not have cared less about the losers when I read this originally. But now I go back to this story all the time. Yeah. So. For a while, I really liked the animated because I thought it was more succinct and it, it cut some of the fat out. Now I'm starting to realize letting that breathe and having all those mm-hmm. background characters, having the Viking Prince, having Adam Strange, having Nathaniel Adam, having the challenge Having Leslie the Tompkins, Luke. having background characters that wouldn't be I introduced until decades later. That made me appreciate more the sprawling mm-hmm. macro. Okay. I think they're each tremendously good uh, for different reasons, and you should look at them that way. That, that would be my Understood. vote. Especially they're both written by the same guy. It, it, I agree. Like It is great to have both of them. And a heck of a voice cast. I mean, if anyone listening oh, to this God, hasn't yeah. taken time to watch that movie, uh, Neil Patrick Harris is Barry Allen, David Boreanaz is Hal Jordan. Um, Lucy Lawless is Wonder Woman. Yeah, the, the, the gentleman who does Vandal Savage in the Justice League cartoon, I think, does King Faraday. It's just, it's a great, great movie. It's aged very well. And I mean, Cook, my favorite Cook work of all time is the work he did on Batman Beyond the Cartoon Show. So seeing him be heavily involved with the New Frontier movie, I, I think it's the best direct-to-DVD movie DC's ever made. Yeah, and yeah. it's it's so concise and so succinct. What I thought, one scene that I loved, again, it, it holds up in both mediums, is Batman confronting John Jones with the match. But the thing I thought was unique in the DVD was when Batman and John Jones are in the Batcave, and John Jones is going, hey, here's here's this. I've had it. I'm moving on. And Batman has so much disdain. He doesn't even turn around and look at him. He keeps his back to him the whole time. Yeah, that was much better done in the movie. I agree. I found myself rereading the book and thinking, oh, wait, you know, why is that? Why does that work so well in the movie? And then I remember Darwin Cook wrote the movie, too. <laughs> it's yeah. amazing to see someone work on both of these uh, so close to each other. Yeah. I mean, the animated movies definitely was one of the things that I, I wanted to get into because it is one of my favorites of the uh, adaptations. Uh, as I'm sure uh, you guys and, and a lot of listeners, I mean, I was a huge fan of the Bruce Tim, the animated series, Batman, Superman, Justice League, Batman Beyond. The direct-to-DVD animated movies that they've been doing over the past few years, I feel they're very hit or miss. For me, usually more of a miss. Um, really only a few that, I, that I've, have really resonated with me. Uh, but New Frontier is definitely one of them. New Frontier was the second one that they did, if I remember correctly. They did Superman Doomsday first. Recently, they've started doing longer movies. So Dark Knight Returns, for example, when they adapted that, they did it in in two movies. So they really were able to cover everything. New Frontier was one of those, though, where, you know, they they have a very strict 75-minute time limit. I know for a lot of fans, they probably wish that this movie had been longer and that more elements from the book had, had been incorporated. I think it definitely, certain moments could have used... A little more time to breathe. I mean, it's because I rewatched it just the other night, and I mean, it, it's fast. It does yeah. jump around as much as the book jumps around. This jumps around even more. Mm. Um, and it's funny. I had I watched it oh, just last night, but I had the same observation. Boy, those it jumps very quickly, scene to scene to scene. Yeah. Um, I two things I'll say. I agree with you. I wish possibly it could have been fifteen minutes longer. I don't know if you had made it too, like a Batman. Right. I don't know if it would have been better. I think I, I, I don't think it would have been as good. Uh, again, to me, limits make the artist. I wish this thing could have had another ten minutes uh, more than it did. Yeah, I agree. Uh, but they did, you know, they did trim away a lot of the fat and really got to. I think they focused more on the characters that 
I guess probably they figured most viewers would be more familiar well, with. I did they also branded it as Justice, Justice League. League, the new frontier. Yeah. So from that perspective, it actually works really well because you get to the end and it's almost like, oh, hey, I, I want to see that battle set in 1960 where they fight Starro. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm still waiting for that. Uh, you know, you hit on this before how there were some, you know, some other differences, not just things that were omitted, but things that were shifted. So for example, that scene between Batman and John Jones in the comic, it takes place on the roof of the GCPD with the, under the bat signal. In the movie, it takes place in the Batcave. And the mere fact that he just wouldn't even give him the dignity of looking at him and just kept his... Uh, I thought that was so powerful. Uh, but, you know, one of the other major differences that um, that I really like in the movie is that the movie added what I think is a really critical and sorely lacking scene that with, wasn't in the book. With, with Lois. With Superman and Lois. Up on the Daily Planet. That's the one. Yeah. Because, um, <laughs> you know, in the book, Superman, had all of his interaction or most a lot of his interaction is with wonder woman and it's a great dynamic and a great relationship but when you get to the end of the book and superman is rescued by aquaman and aquaman's like hey i have him he's been asking for someone named lois you know it's a great moment but when there hasn't been any interaction between superman and lois throughout the whole story you know as comic book fans yeah we know their great love story but I really think that that connection point is is needed. I like that the movie added it. Well, for me, when I looked at a new frontier, if I may interrupt, basically when uh, Wonder Woman's in the hospital, she kisses Superman, right? You're like, oh, what's going on? But then in the next few pages, Superman says, my best friend is there. So they kind of established it in just that quick scenario that, you know what? They are friends. Even though she kissed him, it's a little confusing what's happening. But then he says, my best friend is in, you know, recovering. And then final page where, you know, he asked for Lois and it's like, you know that scene where everyone wants to cry and it's like this is that moment so yeah. that's how I guess in printed page that's the best way that he could have done it that's Not. an excellent point I hadn't even noticed that yeah could we go around the table real quick and give your favorite quote what you remember well quote? I've already given mine that you know don't ever mess with, with my iris I guess if I if there's another one uh, it's funny I think all my favorite moments have to do maybe I'm just a romantic at heart but you, re- uh, you really are I was going to point that out later but you, you are you are a romantic my friend because I love when uh, Hal says goodbye to Carol before he goes into battle and he kisses her and it's the you know, oh, the, uh, the, the backdrop against yeah, the jet engine it's beautiful and then um, he waits until the he hears the roar of the jet engine and he knows that Carol can't hear him and he says and he also waits until he has the helmet on and he says I love you so t- just the idea of how brave he is in most situations but not in matters That's of the good. heart I-, I love that and then of course the whole you know this one has been asking for Lois so yeah there's definitely a common thread through uh, my favorite lines but those are mine I mean what, what while these two look up theirs what would you say yours is Rich? Uh, uh, I thought it was fascinating the way when Batman confronted John Jones you know quote with you all I need is a penny for a book of matches. This is the world's greatest detective, and it doesn't mean that he can't hold his own in a fist fight, uh, and that he can't st- stand alongside all of the what we would traditionally call superheroes. But this is a this is a smart man, and this is a man who's not afraid to kind of use his intelligence to his advantage. I mean, the scene with John, it's it's jarring for me because he's meeting the, well, the character that will become the Martian Manhunter, a teammate of his, and he's basically threatening him. He's basically saying, if you hurt the people of this world, which I, I'll take I you care out. very dearly about, I'm going to take you out. And guess what? It's not even going to be that difficult. <laughs> you've you've you know crossed uh, the, the vast gulf of space to be here, but I, I'm going to take you out. But over the course of this book, we see him warm to him, and we see them fight together. And at the end, it's one of those things where you know, if you were reading Justice League in 1959, maybe you said, oh, okay, it makes sense that all the superheroes would be together. But reading it today, it's like, oh, they, they earned this. They really came together after struggle. I mean, New Frontier is essentially the origin story of the Justice League of America. So, Mike and Phil, your favorite lines? Uh, I mean, there's so many. I just said a few, but um, the one that I really liked was when uh, Flash um, goes through the center with uh, the shrinking thing, and basically, as he's about to fall, he says... Um, I did it. I let my final arc carry me over the water. Live or die, I don't care. I did it. And the last thing I see is an angel of mercy, and you just see Wonder Woman coming. It's just, it was such a well-established way to describe Wonder Woman. She is not a bloodthirsty, barbarian Amazonian. She has love in her heart. You know, this, she cares. And just to describe her as the angel of mercy, oh my God, I was like, I'm done. This is, this is it. This is perfect way to describe her. Yeah, the way that Cook utilizes other characters to describe characters we already know is amazing. Because well it's like, how do they view them when they're all standing next to each other? It's just, oh, yeah, I forgot about that scene. Good call. That's a great point. And what about you for a favorite line? Yeah, so my favorite line, it, 
I, I don't know. It's it's kind of weird, but it really, really stuck with me. I, I read it several times when I was going over my reread. It's in the very first issue when Rick, Cloud, uh, Rick Flagg and Johnny Cloud have finally found each other on Dinosaur Island, and Johnny is sticking with the mission. He says, I, I, I am here to get you off of this island. And he says, get your squad. We're, we're leaving. And, and he doesn't have a boat or anything else. And Rick Flagg looks at him, and he pulls out a bunch of dog tags. And he says, my squad... Why they're right here in my pocket. Um, so if you've got a way off this rock, we'd all be happy to move out. And it's it's a small moment, but it really drives this character home. And it just it reminded me why I enjoy the rest of this because Darwin is so good at writing superheroes, but he's good at all different genres. He's such a good creative power. Like this particular line, one of the reasons I liked it so much is um, I'm a big fan of Garth Ennis, and he writes a lot of war comics. I've read a tremendous amount of war comics by that man, and there's always lines in here that make you really feel for veterans and active servicemen. And when I read this, I said, oh, that's one of the reasons I enjoy New Frontier so much. He's working muscles that go in different genres. And this drove that home for me. And it was a nice contrast to the first time I read this one, the, the, the Wednesday, the very first issue came out all those years ago, where I probably skipped right over this because I wanted superheroes and escape. Mm-hmm. This is grounded in reality, even though they're on what is essentially Jurassic Park. Like if I can say one more line, um, there's so, so many great lines. You can't pick one. You know that. Um, the second one, as he mentioned with the, the veterans, is the line that Hal Jordan says about Korea, where he said, um, but Korea forced me to find out what would make me kill, survive. Mm-hmm. I would kill to survive, and we have to kill this creature. So, I mean, it's showing that, you know, maybe Superman, because he's been in this, uh, in the business for so long, he knows maybe he can find an alternative. When you're a young, budding superhero, you have your black and white, and you're like, for my survival, I have to kill. It's you know? do or die. Yeah, it's and, binary. Yeah. And he's been in war, so, you know... He's a soldier, so he understands the necessity of killing. Why you kill? So that another great line, you know. Speaking of the center, you know the the villain in this piece. I mean, I, I had mentioned this in in my email, but uh, you know, so we're set in a time of Cold War paranoia, and you have this villain that's infecting everyone with fear and death and all of that. So uh, not the most subtle, but Mike, you actually had an interesting rebuttal to that. Not that I was saying it as a negative, but just more of an observation. Uh, no, I I thought it was really effective because again, I, I tried to imagine what a villain that could have united all these foes would have been like in 59 when these books came out. And I thought the center was appropriate because it seemed like the type of, I don't want to say generic foe, but you know, back then you didn't have many as many repeat antagonists as you had today. So to me, the center was like, okay, it's big. There's a lot of stuff to hit. There's a lot of stuff to throw at you. And at the end of the story, it goes away. It almost felt like something that would have been published at that time. Um, you know, uh, I think about the stories back then and there's a lot of like Batman sci-fi stories and they fight these ridiculous one-off alien menaces and they're so out there. They're so like an outer limits cast off from there. And to see them all fight this, this character, the center almost felt like, yeah, that's, that's period appropriate today. It might be a little weird, but for that period of time, it's like, yeah, yeah, we're all going to fight dinosaur Island. All right, let's go. Let's move ahead on that. My favorite thing about new frontier is it's essentially a story about the comic book industry. So, I I always tend to tell people, you know, comics are great, superhero comics are even better, but the history of the medium is probably one of the best stories. Like, you have titans, you have deception, you have back and forth, you just have so much good stuff. This comic book takes you from the end of not only World War II, but the end of the height of superhero popularity. And it ends with the birth of the Silver Age, which we all know pretty much starts with, you know, Justice League number one, the return of the Flash. These are set points in time. And he uses... Uh, fictional versions of real-world events to show you what was going on. Uh, Superman, Batman, and Wonder Woman were consistently published in the 50s. They never diminished in popularity, and that's reflected here in the fact that they never go away, and they have to shepherd a new generation of superheroes. Um, The McCarthy hearings in this book, and that have been showcased other places, including James Robinson's The Golden Age, I mean, that's very reminiscent to me of of Dr. Wortham and the seduction of the innocent and all the stuff Mm -hmm. that really happened in the real world. This book reflects in a way, what the industry and the genre actually went through. So when you get to that last page, and I keep mentioning the fight with Starro, like, I've never even read All-Star number three, but when I see them fight this alien, this, this almost Lovecraftian threat, they have earned that. The industry has earned that. I mean, yeah, maybe across the street they were making the Fantastic Four and everything else, but Darwin Cook has 
done his job and made you love these characters, even though during the 50s you probably wouldn't have cared about any of them. So That's that is my favorite part about New Frontier. I didn't realize this, but it, it, it one thing I do want to bring up, I did not like it at the beginning, the visual layout, the three panels per page. Because you look at a lot of other stuff, it's much, much more dynamic, altered, you know, um, angular. Uh, they might not even have panels. But this grew on me, and it fostered a real consistency and continuity such that when I got at the end, it just seemed right. Yeah, that was something. I don't think I noticed that the first time that I read this. Uh, it came out in 2004. I was in high school. I mean, I was savvy enough, but I don't know that I really was paying attention to the layout. But in subsequent readings, and especially in preparing for this, yeah, it really did jump out at me. It's almost exclusively the three panels per page. Every now and then you get that splash page, and it really feels earned. Uh, and then there are only really a couple of double-page spreads. Uh, is the first one when they show the center for the first time? I, I think it is, I just, yeah. yeah. I just realized that three metal, wow. Yeah, and there's another one where it's all in black and white as if you were sitting at home and you were yes. watching this on the grainy news footage. There's the one at the end where it's the, the quote-unquote, the right stuff, and uh, Ace Morgan is literally putting on his aviator shades, and it's just, it hits you, like... Yes, yes, you've earned that. We've all earned that. You know, this is this is not an early image book. This is this is a master of the craft. Look at this. Yeah. Uh, I just I want to just take another moment to talk about Darwin Cook. Um, I remember when he passed away. Not too recently, I remember reading the news, and it was very strange because it really, really upset me. I can't imagine what his friends and family are going through, but he was great. He was really, really good. I mean, this may be his most well-known work, but please, if you're listening to this and you've never read Parker or his spirit or any of his other stuff, please do yourself a favor. Catwoman, get it. It's so good. Um, There's a page that I'm looking at right now from the absolute and it's the normal three panel grid, but Cook was very good at being able to tell a story with the panels. And what I mean by that is there is motion, even in his still images. It's something you see a lot with Jack Kirby. It's not easy to do. Cook makes me appreciate art. A couple of years ago, I think he did variant covers for every book that came out from DC that month. And it was the first time in my adult life that I was just buying random DC books because I would look at a cover and I would see an entire story in a single panel. Um, If if you can look up online the cover for Grayson, Dick Grayson is falling through a shaft and each one of the bombs around him is counting down at a different number. You're being told the entire story right there and it's amazing. It's a single static image, but it's just great to look at. You've seen this stuff on posters. You've seen this stuff on other people's walls. He was amazing and he did Batman Beyond. He worked in animation. He had a varied career. Like It's all good and it's just like we're all worse for him being gone. Yeah, it was truly a rare talent that uh, the industry lost. And certainly, you know, again, to echo what you said, I mean, you know, certainly for his friends and family, you know, we continue to offer our condolences. All right. Well, I thank you all very much for being part of this special book club episode of My Comic Shop History. I hope listeners enjoyed this comic book talk. Keep tuning in uh, for future episodes. Thank you for listening. Thank you for supporting the show. Don't be a flat squirrel. My Comic Shop History is a Flat Squirrel production. Please visit flatsquirrelproductions.com to explore my other projects, including My Comic Shop Documentary, By Spoon, The Jay Mizell Story, and the forthcoming Wacky Man, The Rise of a Puppeteer. Be sure to subscribe to My Comic Shop History on iTunes and catch up on Season 1. Like My Comic Shop History on Facebook and follow me on Twitter at Desi Westside. Likes, ratings, and reviews are always greatly appreciated. Thank you for listening and continuing to support this show.